Revelation chapter 7 uh, is really uh, a wonderful chapter in all of the midst of judgment and correction and God dealing with the lost. It is a beautiful chapter of how God deals with his people. And I think that you will find that throughout the word of God, uh, that there is correction, there is judgment, yet there is salvation. And I think that is what the Bible tells us to do, that we're to reprove, we're to correct, we're to teach, we're, it has to be a balance. If you're always correcting, uh, people get discouraged. If you're always encouraging, uh, people get into a false sense of pride. And so uh, we see that throughout the word of God. Uh, the problem with Revelation chapter 7 is, uh, while it is such an encouraging uh, chapter, and one that I think is plain and simple to read, it is a chapter that is very much disagreed on about who it is talking about. I brought with you two commentaries that I use. Uh, this one uh, views the 144,000 as a picture of the church. Uh, this one, which I use, shows that the 144,000 are what the Bible says, Jewish evangelists. And so I uh, always want to say this because I think it is important. You can usually tell what someone believes by who they listen to. If their favorite television uh, pastor is David Jeremiah, most of the time they will agree with him. If uh, their favorite teacher is Albert Moeller, the president of Southern Seminary, they will uh, follow him. And so I just want to give you a little bit of how I study um, for my personal Bible study to teach you. Uh, I try to take one hour to read the chapter that we're studying. I read the chapter in front of it, the chapter after it. That way, you get a context of what the Bible says. One hour of reading and praying over that chapters. I try to take two hours to listen to three sermons on the text. Two hours. Some guys are longer, some guys are shorter. Sometimes it's four, sometimes it's three. But I always try to listen to two people that I agree with, two people that I do not necessarily agree with. I don't listen to heretics or I don't listen to the Mormons or something like that. But I might listen to someone who is an Assemblies of God pastor, or I might listen to someone who is a General Baptist. I then take four hours of studying what the words mean, looking through a lexicon, a Greek, a Hebrew, uh, doing the studies of what the words mean, taking notes, all of those things. So if you ever come into my office, it's always a mess, and there are little note sheets of paper. For some reason, I like to take notes on the little line of paper that are this big instead of great big. I don't know why, but I just do. And then I try to take the last three hours of organizing and praying over it, finding examples, relatable things of that nature. And I do that because I try to read this commentary that pretty much I agree with almost everything, and this commentary that I disagree with a lot. But yet, this is written from Mid-American Baptist Seminary, which if you know anything about that, it's right across from Bellevue, one of the biggest Southern Baptist churches in the world. And this is from a professor from Liberty University, which is the largest online Baptist school in the world. And I do that because I never want to just teach what I think. We all need to be challenged. We all need to be encouraged to think about what does the Bible say. And so uh, I think that's very important, and I encourage you to do that, to really dive into what you believe and why. Because when we come to Revelation chapter 7, we're breaking it down into two groups. But in order to study chapter 7, you have to study how chapter 6 ended. So in Revelation chapter 6, starting in verses 12 through 17, we looked at the sixth seal. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. 
And the kings of earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. In verse 17, for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? I told you last week that starting in chapter 6, the chronological order of things is pretty much universally accepted. The seals are going to happen. Now there is some disagreement over are the first six seals actually in the seven-year tribulation or are they the birthing pains that the Bible talks about? I believe the uh, first six seals uh, up until this point are the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Some people do not believe the tribulation itself begins until right here. This is important because it will affect how you view these two groups of people. Right here in the text, the first view is that the 144,000 Jewish evangelists are under special protection as they minister to the nation of Israel and the world. And the multitude in the second half are those who have been killed during the first three and a half years and are continuing to be killed. This seal of protection that is put on these evangelists are so that they can do the mission of taking the gospel to Israel and the whole world. Because there's going to be earthquakes and, and persecution and all this stuff, they're going to need special protection. You say, well, Jake, is that biblical? I would take you to Daniel in the lion's den. I would take you to the three Hebrew boys in the fire. The Bible is full of God supernaturally protecting his people in order to accomplish a purpose. I would take you to Elijah when he called down fire from heaven. All right, so it's a clear, not a problem from a biblical standpoint. The second view is that the 144,000 are not really Jewish people. They're just New Testament Christians. Now this is where I told you that you either have to believe that God still has a purpose for the Jewish people or he doesn't. Either there are promises given to the Jewish people from the Old Testament that have to be fulfilled or God is totally done with the Jewish people. He's moved on. Everything that he is going to do is through the church. And I'm going to address that in the text tonight. And so the multitude are those who have been saved throughout entire church history and then at the end of the tribulation they are worshiping. Those are the two views that you can hold to, all right? Uh, I hold to the first view, that they are Jewish evangelists that God has a special purpose for during the tribulation period. And so any questions before we jump into the text? you're taking notes there at the top it says the plan that God has for his people the plan that God has for his people we're going to read verses 1 through 8 and then we're going to pray after these things you'll see that in the Bible that when one vision ends God is moving us to the next uh, in chapter 4 if you remember it started the same way after these things after what things Chapters 2 and 3, the church age, the church letters to the church, after these things. Chapters 7 starts after the first six seals, as the sixth one is opening, after these things. I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth. And the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Sounds very straightforward. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. 
Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. If you would pray with me. Father, tonight as we come to study your word, we know that it is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. And so, Lord, we pray that you would just use this to inform us, to, to change us, to encourage us, to let us know who you are. Father, I know that you are the only one that can create and do anything spiritual in our hearts and lives. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that tonight. Give us clarity of heart, clarity of mind, and an understanding of your word. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we see here uh, this picture of four angels on the four corners of the earth. Now, this is not teaching that the earth is flat, like some people have studied and said. Uh, we know that that's not the case. And if you don't know that's the case, then I would love to talk to you at another point. But um, it's an idea of the whole world. A picture of the judgment of God on the world. We just saw that the sixth seal has been unsealed. And so the judgment is beginning to start. I believe the second half of the tribulation period is getting ready to happen. This time of great tribulation that the world has never seen. But right before it unfolds, as we just see it being described in chapter 6, we see that God does something. He sends this angel. Now, when in the Bible you can find many examples is a picture of judgment. Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. At this time it will be said to his people and to Jerusalem, a dry wind of, high, of desolate heights blows in the wilderness toward the daughter of my people, not to fan or not to cleanse. A wind too strong for these will come for me. Now I will also speak judgment against them. Judgment is coming. But before this judgment, unlike anything the world has ever seen, God sends an angel with a specific purpose. And it's with a seal, to seal the servants of God. If you know anything about what the Bible says, we're not going to just take human history. What does the Bible say? That a seal, a signet ring, was given to a representative of the king to accomplish his purposes. An ambassador that had the rights and privileges to speak for the king. We see this in the story of Esther in chapter 3. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agatite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. So Haman has acting on the authority of the king, as we know, to try to kill the Jewish people. And what we see here from this text is that the seal was given to do what? It is given to seal of the living God, and he cried. We see that. Do not harm them, right? The earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. One thing that you need to notice here is this is calling them servants. It is not talking about them being saved. These individuals are already saved. They are already born again. They are children of God. We know that in Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, we know that the Holy Spirit seals us when we are saved. That's why we believe in the security of the believer. The Holy Spirit indwells us. Ephesians chapter 1 says, In whom you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed, secured, stamped, <coughs> with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. That is being sealed for salvation. What is going on here is they are being sealed for service. These evangelists are going to go everywhere, as I said, through the persecution, through the, through the violence, through, the, through the, the, all that's going to happen in chapter 8. And we see that in chapter 8, verse 5, when God starts to pour out these judgments. Then the angel took the censer 
filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So we see here that God is protecting them to take the gospel to the end of the earth. The problem with this is some people say, well, why doesn't God do that now? Why do missionaries get killed in Africa? Why do missionaries die all over the world? Why aren't they protected now? Because God is doing something different in the tribulation period that has never been done. It is the last chance for humanity to experience Christ, to know him, to be saved. We see that in 2 Timothy. We see it in Titus. We see it in 2 Peter, that the God is a God who wants to save. And even in the midst of all this judgment, God is bringing about the greatest revival, the greatest evangelistic mission the world has ever seen, ever. We're going to look at that here in just a second when we look. Uh, if you want to, you can flip over there with me on the next page on Matthew 24, verse 14. We looked last week at how chapter 24 of Matthew goes through the same judgments and seals. But at the end of that, it says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. I do not believe that the church is going to be the one that takes the gospel to the whole world before the tribulation. I believe that it's all over the world. I believe the gospel is in every country, every tribe, every tongue. But when we really see that evangelistic mission happen will be during the tribulation period. It's estimated that there are somewhere around 50,000 missionaries in foreign countries today. Now imagine that by triple and every one of those missionaries have the right heart, the right motive, special protection from God to do the work of spreading the gospel. Imagine what would happen in that time. And so that's what we kind of see in these first uh, three verses. Uh, questions? Well, the reason some people struggle with the first view that these are Jewish people is when we see the list here, if you've read through the Old Testament, there are 19, I believe, references to uh, the 12 tribes, different lists, different names. Um, and, and so they're saying, well, it's not the same, so it can't be right. Other people will say, well, God cannot work through the Jewish people. Because when he writes about the Jewish people to the early church, he says things like they're an instrument for Satan. Um, they are the ones that are persecuting you. And so God is done with the Jewish people. But I would call your attention to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, the apostle Paul has been writing about the need to be saved, how God has a purpose and a plan. You get into those chapters about election and all the stuff that goes on there. But in chapter 11, he is addressing the Jewish people. And I believe gives us the strongest case that God has purpose and plan for the Jewish people. In Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 1, I say then, has God cast away his people? He's talking about the Jew. Certainly not. For I am also an Israelite, the seed of Abram, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleased with God, pleased with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. If you remember, Elijah was, I'm all by myself. There's no one left to stand up against this evil woman and her king that is a husband. And God says, come on now, you're not alone. I have set aside a group of people who have been faithful. It's not just you. But that's how Satan tries to work. It's just us. It's just me. It's me against the world. I'm the only one that's being faithful. And he says there, he literally is talking about the Jewish people. There's no way around it. He even says, I'm an Israelite. I'm of the big Jewish people. 
And I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. This is who the tribe I'm from. And some people will say, well, that's not what it means. I'm going to say this as nice as I can, and if I offend you, I'm sorry. I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. But I don't see how you can explain it as anything else. Paul literally says, has God completely done away with the Jewish people? Certainly not. He said, if I am of that tribe, I am of that people. And just like Elijah thought God was done with him and everyone else, he wasn't. He had chosen some people, and there were faithful people that were going to be used by him. Now, we know that that is not teaching that the Jew could be saved any other way other than Jesus. Right? Paul had to come to Jesus through faith, not by works. But at the end of this same chapter, Paul again describes how the Jewish people are going to come back. What it's going to look like when God sends true salvation, true revival to the Jewish people. And what I've got here on my notes is this. This is the J. Gray version of what we're going to read. God will use salvation to the Gentile people. And I believe the rapture of the church to bring a godly jealousy and a desire for mercy. When the Jews begin to go through the tribulation, they begin to say, hey, there's a whole group of people that are missing this. That should be us. That was what Jesus came to do for us. But we rejected him. You say, Jake, I don't agree with that. That's all right. Let's just let Paul tell you what he thinks. For I do not desire, brother, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Paul even says, don't be dumb. I want you to know how God's going to work in the Jewish people. Lest you should be wise in your own opinions, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentile has come in. Just stop right there. The Jewish people rejected Christ so that you could be saved, that I could be saved. The Gentiles could have the gospel. We could become the church. He says that's why. They rejected for our benefit. And I'm thankful. I am thankful. But it goes on and says, And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion. And he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. All right, he's saying that there's going to be a day, but that day is not today. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins concerning the gospel. Now, this is where I want to go real slow because you'll say, well, there's Jake, there's all these other verses. Paul just lays it out right here. He's talking about the gospel. What is the gospel? That Jesus Christ died upon the cross, was buried, he rose again, and if you will call upon the name of the Lord and believe in your heart that Jesus has risen from the dead, you shall be saved. They are enemies. He says the Jew is the enemy now. They have rejected Christ. They have denied him. They have called for him to be crucified for your sake. It happened so that the world that was not Jewish could hear the gospel. But concerning the election, the fact that they are God's chosen people, we see that from the beginning of the book of Genesis, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. Now this is where it gets kind of confusing. He's not talking about their parents. He's talking about the promises that were made to their fathers. The promises that were made to Abraham. The promises that were made to Isaac. The promises that were made to David. He says God's not honoring them because of them. God's going to work in them because of him. Because God made the covenant. God made the promise. That's why we're not saved because of who we are. The only reason we are saved and say saved is because of who? Him. Alright? For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He says, yes, God is using the church. God is using uh, you, the Gentiles. But the promises that he made to that group of people are irrevocable. Why? Because God is not a liar. God does not break his word. 
For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. He said, so you were wicked and far from God, but you have been given the opportunity to be saved. Even so, these also, who is these also? Come on, you got to say at least one thing tonight. The Jewish people. And we just looked at a whole chapter talking about what group of people. This, this commentary right here says he's not talking about the Jewish people. And I'm like, ah. this commentary says he's talking about what? Who knows? All I can tell you is what the Bible says. Amen. That through the mercy shown you, the fact that we were shown grace and mercy and forgiveness through the cross, they also may what? Obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. He says they rejected totally this time, but they're not going to reject totally next time. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He says, if you don't like it, take it up with God. And I've read this a lot. And why would Paul write this to the church of Rome? One, because they were a Gentile church. There were some Jews in it, but most of them had been persecuted with the Jewish people, by the Jewish people. And so if you've ever been hurt by someone, your desire is to forgive and love them, right? I love when people hurt me. It just makes me love them so much. I'm just like, oh, Lord, thank you. Let them hit me again, right? No, you get bitter. You get angry. You get vengeful and vindictive. And what God says through Paul to the Roman church was, hey, I know they don't look like it right now. I know they're not acting like it right now. I know they're not embracing their promises right now. But I'm telling you, I'm not done with them. And I don't know about you. I'm not Jewish. But I'm glad that God extended that mercy to me. Amen. He knew me. He knew what I'd done. He knew where I'd been. And yet the Bible says he died for the ungodly. And so he says, whoa, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He's just praising him. He says, I love the Jewish people. I am a Jew. I came from the tribe of Jew. I'm heartbroken from them. You can read Romans chapter 10 and Romans chapter 9. And, and Paul says, if I would give up my own salvation for them. He says, oh, but God's not done with them. Oh, it seems like he's done with them. He seems like there's moved on from them, but oh, God's not done with them. Amen. As hopeless and as broken and as wicked as they seem. Now, I'm going to say this, and it's not going to be popular. Once again, I don't care. The reason I believe that this view is being embraced, all right, is because there is an air of arrogance in the church today that looks down on the Jewish people, that looks like we're the only one who knows anything. I think a large part of that is because of our seminaries, because of our state conventions. All of these things have this air of superiority. But we should be reminded is, it doesn't matter what you've been given, the Lord can take it away. You are not entitled to God's promises just because of who you are. But if God makes them to you and you accept them, God will honor them. And even if you failed in them, if you'll come back to him, he'll honor them. Now I want to finish this and then we'll discuss. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways pass by. He says, you don't even think this makes sense, but it's true. You can't process this. You were Jewish and your families kicked you out because you got saved. Why did the people of Acts chapter 2, why were so many of them living in Jerusalem after they were saved? Because they couldn't go home. They would have been disowned. They would have been kicked out. But yet, he says, how unsearchable are his judgments. You don't get a say in this. He's the one that's in control. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him? And it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. And I love this. Because he finishes up by saying, everything's about him. By him, for him, through him. It's like when the Bible says all things were made by him, for him, through him. He says, his wisdom and plan and purposes encompass everything. And if I'm a Roman Christian and I'm reading this, and I've lost a loved one to persecution, I'm thinking, oh, I don't like this. If I've lost a loved one in the sense that my family has disowned me that was Jewish, that I'm not Jewish, I'm reading this thinking, oh, so the fact that I was somebody and now I'm a nobody in my family's eyes. We looked and when we looked at the different letters that if you didn't sign certain papers, you couldn't work. Some of these people not only lost their family, they lost their jobs, they lost their spouses, they lost everything. And here in chapter 11, Paul says, God's not done with them. Even though you might be. That'd been a hard pill to swallow. But he sums it up by saying, praise be to God. Praise be to God for his mercy. For the fact that he is long-suffering. For the fact that he keeps his promises to his people. Now, I know that was a lot. And I know what you're thinking. I don't want to talk now, but go ahead. I was really passionate. Sorry about that. I... Good. Yes, some can't hear you. Right. Um, yes. Says he that blesses Israel. Mm -hmm. It could refer to us or it could refer to a nation. Mm -hmm. He that blesses Israel shall be blessed. He that curses Israel shall be cursed. Absolutely. God loves Israel. He will always love Israel and the Jews to the end. He will take care of them. And I've noticed something whether it is a Democrat president or a Republican, I have noticed and there's documentation on it, every time our country goes against Israel, there'll be something happen to this country. And they got all that documented. And, you know, and that they have, both sides, have come against Israel. Yeah. And we pay the price when we do. Absolutely. And the reason he, he said that uh, about some people, there are three instances in the New Testament, uh, Galatians, uh, I think it's Ephesians, that he references Israel and the church in the same sentence. And so if you just took those three verses and said, okay, well, then all the promises were gone to Israel, those three isolated verses are usually talking about salvation by grace through faith, all right? They're not talking about our status compared to his. But in chapter 11 of Romans, this whole chapter is directed to who? These Christians about what God's going to do with Israel. And so if you want to know what God's word actually says, you can't pick a verse here. You can't pick a verse over here. You can't take one that might mean it here. You need to find a chapter. And then you can go back to chapter 10. You can go back to chapter 9 and chapter 8 and say, wow, this is half of the book. And this is what it's talking about. And so I believe this is where you get that firm biblical perspective that the God's working through the Jewish people. So other questions, comments? So do we see the 144,000 anywhere else in the book of Revelation? Yes. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, Then I look and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. So I believe, and some disagree, that these 144,000 will survive the entire second half of the tribulation. And so when the Lord comes to destroy his enemies, they're going to be here. They're going to be celebrating. Why? Because God's seal of protection is on them. And why is that? Because up until the last moment, 
we look and we're going to see that there are going to be two angels uh, in the heaven, in the skies, preaching the gospel. Or three, two, I can't remember now. There are going to be two witnesses who die and are raised back to life that are preaching the gospel. And this 144,000 is going to be soul winning up until the very end. And what I take great courage in that is that the Lord is redeeming people up until the very end. The Lord is making a way for people to be saved until the very end. Some people would say that I don't think there's going to be Gentiles saved during the tribulation period. I disagree with that because, just because, if you look in the next group of people, we're not going to look, we're going to look in just a second, when it says, verse 14, and I said to him, sir, you know, so he said, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and that who come out is a present verb, and what it means is are coming out, is coming out. This group of multitude is growing during the whole tribulation period because there are saved people that are martyred. There are saved people that die because of old age. There are saved people that die because of earthquakes and tornadoes. And so the multitude is going to grow. And so that multitude that he's talking about is from what? All nations, tribes, peoples, tongues. It's the whole world, all right? So it doesn't just say the Jewish multitude. It says a multitude of people from the whole world. And that verse I read from Matthew chapter 24 talks about the gospel will be preached in all the world. Now, I said all of that because the issue is the tribes. Before we get into the tribes, any questions? Yes? Do you find during the tribulation period after the rapture these people that get saved during the tribulation, do you think most of them will be martyred or all of them? I think that there will be uh, a lot of them. I think just because if you don't have the mark, you're not going to be able to eat and you're not going to be able to buy and you're not going to be able uh, to sell. And so I would say uh, most. Uh, I don't know. I, I've tried to find different uh, verses to support one or the other. And I think you could probably make a guess. But I think it's best just to say that, that there's going to be a lot of death going on. <laughs> Um, in this period because if you remember in chapter 5 um, or excuse me in chapter 6 when the seal is opened the martyrs were underneath the altar if you remember right they're praying their prayers were being lifted up to the Lord so uh, I think there's I, mean, I think you could go to either position and be okay yeah, you can't find much on that no no I think it's you know I think a lot will be killed by just the natural disasters themselves because the 144,000 are protected. I believe that. Right. But the rest of those who are saved in the tribulation, I don't believe they have that uh, sealing that we see here in chapter 7. They're sealed for salvation. They're not sealed for service. Yes? Modern day Jews have no idea for the most part what tribe they're in. Right. So, Yes. That's the key. They, they don't know. They do not know. Absolutely not. But absolutely God knows. Right? And you almost even hate to mention the word election in the Baptist church anymore because there's so many terrible ideas going out there. But God knows everything. And God has a purpose and a plan. And He knows. And I'm going to read this. John MacArthur, I think, has one of the best statements. And I didn't want to plagiarize it, so I just copied it word for word. And, and gave him credit, all right? <laughs> Work for and gave credit, all right? And there are sometimes variations even in the names. Let me show you why. There are several interesting things here. The first tribe named is Judah, but Judah was not the firstborn. Reuben was. Why institution Reuben first? And the answer is Judah is named first, though he was not the firstborn of Jacob or Israel, because according to 1 Chronicles 5 verse 1, Reuben lost his birthright because he sexually defiled his own father's bed. And who has slipped down from the primogenitor role? See, I couldn't quote that and you think that was my word, right? I still struggle, you know. I had to look it up and I'm still not sure what it means. Then you have another interesting note down in verse 7. It includes Levi. 
Now, Levi was the priestly tribe from which the Levites come, and they never were given a territory. So why are they included here? They're usually kind of on the outside. They were the priests to the whole nation and never had a territory. Why were they included? The answer is because Dan is left out. The tribe of Dan is left out because of their gross idolatry. Dan was the only tribe that failed to conquer its territory. Judges chapter 1. The references are for scripture for you to look up. And Dan wholly turned to idols, Judges 18. And because of Dan's gross sin, and because in Deuteronomy 29, verses 18 through 21, it says that anyone who brings idolatry into Israel will have their name blotted out. The tribe of Dan is removed, and Levi slips into their place to keep it. This is my favorite part. You will be happy to know that in the millennial listing of the tribes in Ezekiel 48, Dan is included. God's grace triumphs on Dan's behalf. And Dan is brought into millennial glory, but Dan is not protected throughout the tribulation because of his idolatry. Then one other note, instead of having Ephraim and Manasseh, you have in verse 6, Manasseh only. And down in verse 8, Joseph. Usually to get the listing of 12, Levi not having a territory, the two sons of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim are listed, but Ephraim is lifted out. Why? Because Ephraim was addicted to idols. Ephraim was a defector from the house of David, and Ephraim was an ally of Judah's enemies. So some interesting notes here. So Ephraim's place is taken by his father, Joseph. Some say, well, how can there be 12 tribes when the 10 northern kingdoms were taken into captivity and totally destroyed? Well, if you've read anything about the Old Testament, the northern kingdom and southern kingdom intermarried. All right? It's, it, it was just it was a bunch of mixtures going on and everything. And like uh, David said, God knows. God has these individuals, the purpose, of plan for them and their life, just like he had for John the Baptist, just like he had for Elijah. They don't know it. They're not going to be able to show a card and say, hey, I'm of the tribe of Reuben or I'm of the tribe of, but God knows. Because why? Where is this scene taking place? It's on earth, but we're getting ready to translate into where? Heaven. God is orchestrating all of this, planning all of this, and God is in control. And so I think it is a beautiful picture of God's love for the Jewish people. They can't be saved any other way. And that he's got a plan for them. He has a purpose. I believe these are the first fruit, all right? I don't believe like the Jehovah Witnesses believe that these are the only 444,000 people in heaven. All right, that is not what it says here at all. It's talking about a special group of people that are specially equipped to do what God has asked them to do. So, other questions, thoughts? I'm almost done even though we're out of time. The next page notes is really small. All right. We see that God's plan involves his people worshiping him. So we see that God has a plan for his people, and that involves worshiping him. In verses 9 through 17, we see this beautiful example. After these things, so he says once again, we've seen what's going on in earth. We're going to see what's going on in heaven. After these things, I look and behold a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures, which we've looked at them already, and fell on their faces before the throne of worship God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the answer, elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes? Where do they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. This verse 16 and 17 are a beautiful promise. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. 
For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know that statement, you see it in Revelation chapter 21. But what I want to just call your attention to is what we see here is very similar to what we see in John chapter 12 when Jesus is triumphantly entering into Jerusalem. The next day, a great multitude that had come to feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. If you look back, now when they see there in Revelation 7, they're worshiping him. They are, they're talking about not who comes in the name of the Lord, but salvation belongs, right? He was riding into Jerusalem to purchase salvation, right? He purchased our salvation on the cross when he was crucified, when he took your sin and my sin, was buried and rose again. Now the song's different. He's not coming to save you. He has saved you. It's a sign of victory. It's a sign that the cross and the resurrection has happened. The battle has been won. Heaven is not rejoicing the fact that he was going. The, the heaven is rejoicing the fact that he did come. It's a done deal. We see here this idea of the worshiping him and all of those things. But also the second part we see here in Revelation, the song is very similar to Revelation chapter 5 when they were singing his praises, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. To receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. So it gives us this picture that we are worshiping God as he is unfolding this plan. We are watching as God is at work, as God is righting the wrongs, God is defeating the enemies, and all of heaven is rejoices. I told you that term there, have come out, is a present tense verb. It means is coming out, are coming out. And so throughout the seven-year period, the multitude is going to keep growing as God is saving people, as people are being martyred, as people are, are dying and going to heaven. But those last two verses, and I'll close. They are a wonderful promise of one being in the presence of God. See that? The throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains. The greatest thing about heaven is going to be being in the presence of the Lord. I don't care what anybody else says about why they want to go. I want to see my grandparents. I want to see my sibling. I want to see the children we lost in the womb. All of those things, right? I want to meet Paul and I want to... You know, I, I want to do all those things. But the thing about heaven that is the focus point is the worship of Jesus. I'm going to say this, and it's going on the video, and you can share it all you want. What burns me up about people who don't want to come to church, but yet want to be a part of the family of God, because they don't like worship. I know it's broken here, it's not like, but you're going to hate it up there. Because it's what we're going to be doing, worshiping him. I don't believe you get to heaven and, and don't like worship. You're either not going to go or you're going to like it. That's just, there's no in-between, right? There's no disgruntled Christmas and Easter Christians in heaven, right? They're going to be worshiping him, serving him, honoring him. Go figure, the time I don't have to fill committees, everyone's willing to serve, right? <laughs> the, the time I would like to fill the choir, everybody's willing to sing, but I don't get to, you know. So, but that's what we see here. The promise of being with him. But two, we see what happens when the effects of sin are no longer an issue. What does it say there? There is no more hunger. Most of these Christians who would have been martyred couldn't buy food. They didn't take the mark. They would have experienced hunger to the point of starvation. Nor thirst anymore. They wouldn't have had anything to drink because think of all the disasters on the earth. The water is going to be polluted. The earth is going to literally be turned inside out. And just everything. There's not going to be clean water, fresh water. These people are going to be hungry and thirsty like we cannot imagine. The sun is going to strike them. Right? There's going to be no shelter. There's going to be, uh, everything's going to die. Everything's going to be awful. And then, what does it say? Nor any heat. We know that God is literally in chapter 8, verse 5, going to be throwing down that sensor of fire onto the earth. So there's going to be terrible judgment. Because of sin, 
But what it says is, is when glory happens, none of that's coming with us. That's why Revelation 21 says there's no more sickness, no more death, no more tears. For the former things of what? Passed away. This is the promise he is making, but especially to those people who went through the tribulation, who experienced something that no one else has ever truly experienced. He says, never again. And friends, that is the joy of the promises of God. This world is full of trial and tribulation. Sadness and sorrow, sickness and pain. One of these days, everything is going to be made right. And if you are a person who gets saved at the beginning of the tribulation, when your kids are in your home unable to eat because you didn't take the mark, if you are sitting in a jail cell because you've been rounded up to be murdered for your faith, what are the words of encouragement that you need to hear? Right here. Yes, it seems bad for time, but the Lord's not forgotten you. And I would say the same promises that we are given in Revelation 21 are to us. We're going to be Experiencing heartache, pain, all the things of this world. But heaven is worth it. Heaven is worth it in every way. But what has happened is, in order to grow churches or in order to keep people happy, we have dumbed down what the gospel is and what real worship is and what being a Christian is to the point where everybody thinks this is as good as it gets. This is not as good as it gets. I don't care how good you've got it, it ain't got nothing on what's going to be like. And so as a Christian, we are just traveling through this world. This world is not our, and so we should live that way, looking forward to what it's going to be like, what God's going to do, and the promises that he makes.